Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. to tell you I was conducting a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, what would some of your hypotheses be? Well, I did do a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, so let me tell you what some of mine were. Number one, anxiety, tension, and stress will decrease during and after daily magic wand use. Number two, daily magic wand use will be associated with improved mood, confidence, and happiness when compared with no sexual activity. And number three, Sleep length and sleep quality will improve during daily magic wand use when compared to no sexual activity. After running the numbers, two of those hypotheses were true, and one of them is false. Want to know which ones were true and which one was false? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magic wand experiment to learn more about the experiment. Read some of my daily journals and watch some of my daily vlogs and find the results of these hypotheses and a few others and so much more. When you're traveling, you don't have access to your amazing sex goodies stash. So you start to pack your lube for sexy time in your toiletry bag. And when you open your bag back up, the lube you packed, of course, spills all over your toothbrush, makeup, and floss picks. Enter a brand new product from Uber Lube that will get your lube to your destination without spillage. They're new good to go travelers. Perfect for your purse, pocket, gym bag, or carry-on luggage, the Good To Go Traveler features the same Uberlube product in a discreet aluminum traveler that comes in six colors. Try Uberlube and their Good To Go Traveler now with code SEXED with DB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Are you falling into a pattern with your partner? Looking to spice things up but aren't sure how? Me and my partner exit our ordinary with Lion's Den. Lion's Den has hundreds of your favorite brands to help you and your partner reconnect or try something new. From novices to dungeon masters, there are products for every comfort level. With 50 plus years in business, Lion's Den is here to help. Can't make it to a local store? Shop online and chat with a customer service team member while you shop. Lion's Den offers our listeners 15% off in-store and online using code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. If you're tired of hearing the same old judgmental, shaming financial advice about buying too many lattes from old white men who conveniently ignore issues like systemic oppression, it's time to join us on Financial Feminist. I'm Tori Dunlap, globally recognized money speaker and educator, and I'm a part of a new guard of financial educators. On Financial Feminist, we don't just talk about money, we talk about the ways women are affected differently by money. We're feminist first, acknowledging that your financial savviness has less to do with your weekly coffee order and everything to do with the fact that we live in a patriarchal society that gatekeeps women, people of color, and other minorities out of conversations and education about money. With fascinating guests like Nadia Okamoto, Maya Vander, Justin Baldoni, Christy Carlson Romano, Queen Herbie, and more, we dive into topics like menstrual justice, the investing gap, diet culture, the psychology of money, and more. Plus, you get bi-weekly how-to episodes like how to start investing or how I saved $100,000 at age 25. We're smashing the patriarchy and getting rich one episode at a time. Subscribe to Financial Feminist wherever you're listening now. Hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode. I am so 
excited about this interview. It's so good. Uh, today, you're going to hear my interview with Dr. Candace Nicole. And I'm going to let her introduce herself because she does 9 million things and she's very talented and very smart. And it was very fun talking to her. But I'll give you a little sneak peek. Um, in this interview, we talk about Dr. Candace Nicole's sex research um, focused on good sex, pleasure, and how different partnerships can impact your sexual function. Those are multiple research studies that she gets into. Um, and overall, we talk about how she has published over 50 research studies, and I'm just so impressed by that. Um, she's so cool and so fun and so smart. Did I already say that? Um, and so we talk about a couple of those studies within this interview. We also discuss the importance of centering Black people in scientific research. Uh, we have a really, really amazing conversation about that. And I I just can't wait for you to hear what she does. It's like one of the coolest things ever. And I think as someone who has a public health degree, I was really nerding out and just really, really excited about all of the, the sex research that she has been doing and will continue to do. So uh, you'll hear from her in a second. But uh, I just want to shout out our sponsors. Uh, if you go to sexedwithdb.com slash discounts, you can check out all of our amazing sponsors and check out our codes for 15 to 20% off of products. And you should rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you email us screenshots, you can enter to win a prize. Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. And here we go. Dr. Candace Nicole. Dr. Candace Nicole, good morning. How's it going? It's going well. How you doing? I'm pretty good. I guess it's your afternoon, right? It just became your it just afternoon. Afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Just, just as the clock strikes, it's my morning. Just woke up a little bit ago. Still getting my shit together. You seem very much like you've been awake for many hours. Many hours. Just got back from a workout, but I feel like the turning in of me of around 3 p.m. Right. Shit's going to get real. Like. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I understand. I think there are different parts of the day where I'm just kind of like a lot of energy. You really want to like actively do a bunch of stuff. And then I need to sit for like 45 minutes. I'm like, no. Yeah, I'm heavy on the morning person. Yeah. And so I can get all kinds of stuff done. But once I don't know what it is, but yeah, my energy, once it's depleted, there's no coming back from it until sleep happens. <laughs> right. You're like, I just need a full night of this and then mm -hmm. maybe tomorrow. Um, well, I'm really, really happy to have you here today. Um, you and I connected like a couple months ago just based on other stuff that we were yes. doing, which we will get into, <laughs> but I'd love for you to introduce yourself and just tell us about your work. You're an award-winning psychologist, sexologist, and professor. You have a million talents. So let's get into that. <laughs> Listen, I'm trying to narrow them down though, because it's too much trying to do everything for everyone. But I am, yes. I am a professor at the University of Kentucky and I study sexual wellness and liberation. So I get the chance to mentor some dope students, do some fun research. And um I'm a writer, so I'm working on my first book. So that's awesome. I've yes. been writing forever, like since I was a kid. So this is like dream come true. And then I'm a psychologist, a licensed psychologist. So I see clients. Um, I have a small practice and we get to talk about good things like sex. Yes. Wow. Okay. So you're working on your first book. How has that been going? You know what? I love the process because I'm learning stuff. And, you know, so I thought it was going to be me just like, 
taking the research and making it sound like human beings normally talk. But I'm like, oh, I'm learning things. Like I'm writing this chapter on sexual fun right now. And I'm like, there's not a lot of research on sexual fun. And what is fun? Mm, Am I a fun person? (laughs) (laughs) Am I I authorized to write this? Like. So you're reflecting on a lot here. You're trying to figure right. out how to write about fun, what's going on for yourself. Um, sexual fun. I also have not really read any academia based on sexual fun. I mean, it's like orgasms and like the physiological thing about orgasm, if it's about mm-hmm. anything sex related. Um, so that I can't wait to read your book. I'm very excited. And so I'm thinking about how all of these components of good sex are like experienced by different people based on our social locations. Mm. And for me, I was sitting with the fun part, like, Hmm, I feel like I used to be fun, but 40 year old me is, I don't think I am fun right now. So what happened? as a new colleague of yours, I think you're a very fun person. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Um, you gotta, you gotta help your pals out when they're, when they're questioning stuff. Um, Let's go backwards a little bit. I want to know how you got into this work. And on this podcast, I really ask a lot of my guests, like, what was your aha moment when you knew that you wanted to be researching and teaching about sexual and reproductive health and pleasure? I'm going to take you all the way back. So there are four things. One is my grandma's Encyclopedia Britannica set Mm. that she had on her bookshelf where I was figuring out like when puberty was going to happen. So I was like eight or nine. I was like, when am I going to get boobs? Cause that was very important to me. So that was my introduction into the scientific inquiry. (laughs) And then there is the black garbage bag of VHS porn tapes that were in my grandfather's closet. Oh wow! So it was like pairing that information with this is what sex is supposed to look like, sound like, you know, the myth of all the porn, like, putting those together. Of course. And then there was uh, hip hop. So coming up in the 80s and 90s, that was when my childhood was, and seeing Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown. And so some of the first wave of Black women who were exploring their sexualities publicly in hip hop music, that was a source of information. And then there was like Cosmo magazine and books and stuff like that. I was like kind of pairing all this information because nobody was having real good conversations about sex. They were just shitty sex conversations all Mm -hmm. around, including the health class ones. And at that point, I think that the seed was planted that I would be a sex educator and researcher, but I didn't know those things existed as career paths. So I would be the kid in school telling my peers, like, you need to use this type of condom for this type of thing. Oh, my God. When I was in high school. You were Mm -hmm. their peer-to-peer educator. Yes, yes. And not knowing it was a thing. And then eventually when I got into like high school and I found out psychology was a field, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do with my life. Mm. And I found later that I could pair them. Mind blown. So I was really excited about that. Yeah. You really carved out your own space in this field. Even with sex therapists, there are like, I think I saw an email of someone trying to pitch me to be on the podcast and they were like, there are only a thousand sex therapists in the country, which is, that's very small, right? And I'm both. Like I am a sex therapist. I'm just not certified with ASEC, but that's like primarily my clinical work talks about sex and sexualities. Right. And 
but I get the benefit of doing the academic research and most sex researchers, I, I can name probably a handful, maybe 10 are not therapists and most therapists are not researchers. So I get oh, the interest of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the difference between like, uh, so you, you call yourself a sex therapist, but there's this, a, can you describe like what this ASEC certification is? Mm-hmm. So you can be a certified sex therapist through the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And you can be a sex therapist because that's your specialization area, but you don't have the certification, but you're a licensed mental health professional who specializes in sex. Yes. Let me relate to your uh, grandpa's uh, plastic bag of porn tapes for a hot second. Because when I was a kid, I found a VHS tape in the player of porn <laughs> at my dad's house and yep. my parents were divorced and he was like, you know, he wasn't the primary caregiver. So we mm-hmm. lived with my mom. So I'm sure he just forgot to take it out. Yep. But I remember this feeling. I probably was in like middle school or maybe I was in like fifth grade or something. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like angry. I was just like, what? ew, like why? Like, like how dare you? Ex- like literally, how dare you? Like that was my first idea because I was like, oh, like he's a pervert. Like that's disgusting. Oh. Like how dare? Well, you know, I was a youth. I had zero clue. So I was a youth. <laughs> <laughs> and and he and he didn't like, you know, make any overtures of like, okay, maybe you saw something and here's what you might have seen. It was just like, oh, that's um, like, that's not mine or something. He like said some shit like that. And I was like, oh God, that's so weird. So I, I totally like relate to having this very complex relationship. And I think a lot of young kids, especially now with the internet, right? Like they're seeing porn at very early ages yes. and whether or not they are equipped to handle it. And most are not because parents are not talking about their to their kids about porn. Schools are not doing porn literacy classes not when they when they need to. And so I just I see you with that moment mm-hmm. of kind of like, okay, what is exactly going on here and how is this impacting me like later in life? Yeah, yeah. Cause I was not disgusted. I was very intrigued, like, oh, so the pizza man comes. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how it happened. And then you have sex. <laughs> like, right. So we had different reactions. I was reactions just so curious. Like, huh. Right. Okay, this is what adults do. <laughs> did they like have the conversation with you after they knew you saw it or did they never Nobody knew I saw it because I would it rewind the tape back, put right. it back in there. Okay. But there was this one time where me and some homegirls, we were having a summer party and I was like, okay, we're at my grandparents' house. That's where we stayed a lot of the time. And then my dad came over and we had to stop the tape because he was opening the door and I could not breathe. I thought I was going to die oh for my the God, 10 minutes so he was scary. in there. So I was like, if he presses any button in here, I am going to be, I'm going to just melt into shame. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh I, didn't, I didn't even know if he would do anything. I just felt like I was going to melt into shame. Right. You're but like, I, this is how I die <laughs> from shame in this, <laughs> this moment. Yeah. Wow. Okay heard. Um, Okay. So let's get into the stuff that you study, some of your favorite things. Um, One thing that I absolutely love about your brand is how brilliant the titles of your research are, right? Like you have, quote, hashtag hot girl science, a liberatory paradigm for intersectional sex positive scholarship. (laughs) Like, first of all, but I, I need to say some more or quote, another quote, 
white people stress me out all the time, end quote. Black students define racial trauma, right? Like this this is not the typical title that you would usually see in academia. And as a lay person who has an MPH degree, right? Like I'm kind of both. I was going to say, how are you a lay person? (laughs) Because I'm not a researcher. So like, I still really see research. You did a research study. You have, you've crossed over. You're right. We're going to talk about that. But I think like, because I've always been someone who really, really adores popular science and like the way in which people are able to translate that to the regular public, I really do more so associate as a lay person with things that I don't necessarily understand. And so for the research that you do, the extensive research, you're being super creative in bridging the gap between academia and popular science. Can you talk to me about that and like why you find that to be so critical? Yeah, it's hella important because the people that I want to serve are not predominantly academics. Mm -hmm. And so if we have like our best stuff, our best science locked behind these academic paywalls, people are about to pay $45 to read that article, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so the title makes it intriguing, but then I'll use my social media to talk about it a little bit more, or I'll do an article or an op-ed or something to talk about it a little more in ways that are clearly articulated and not scientific or academic. um, So that Everything that I'm doing is available to who I set out to do it for. So if my grandmother can't understand it, I am not a good scientist. Like, Mm. I feel like it's a part of the scientific process. And most people who engage in the scientific process understand dissemination as one of the ways that, you know, we get credibility in our field, one of the ways that we contribute to the field, but their ideas of dissemination are not public. And mine are very public. So they're academics coming up the pipeline, people I mentor or people who are looking to see what can be done. And that's why I like try to test those types of titles out (laughs) Mm -hmm. to see what the journals are going to say. Cause you know, there are points in your career where you can get away with things because you have built a reputation. Credibility and they, they trust your work. And so they're maybe more lenient. I'm going to push the envelope. Absolutely. (laughs) I didn't know if the journal was going to let white people stress me out all the time fly but it was a direct <laughs> quote from one of the participants in the studies so right. i was like this is what they said and this is a qualitative project so right i and for I mean, hot girl science i was like um, this is what it's called so i love the hot girl science i mean they're both just amazing and you have so many others that we can talk about and that we will talk about but i think it's it's so important this piece about like well if my grandma can't understand it then like why am i even doing this because mm-hmm. if we And I have always felt this generally in my MPH, like just about research in general, is that it is not literate. Like it's not made to be easily digestible. And I don't think that, and, and, and it can be exploitative, right? So like if we're, especially when we're talking about like BIPOC communities, marginalized communities, queer communities, and we're doing research on those folks, how often is research done on them? And then folks come back to check in on those communities and say like, hey, actually, like, what do you need from us now that we've like gotten this from you and gotten this information from you? And so I think that that is a really, really essential piece of what you're doing. And it's very admirable and should be the norm, but unfortunately isn't. I start actually in the opposite direction. I start with what do you need from me? As a person who has access to the privilege of academia and the resources here, um, and then get into the community and participate actively. So I'm, I'm not the type of 
scientist that's going to tell a community what they need or do a study that in some way I didn't see an invitation to do. Mm -hmm. And so that means I'm just actively involved in listening because that's the psychology ear. Like what is happening? What needs to be done? Even if people didn't say, can you study this? It's like, this is the problem I keep running into. Ah, that sounds like a good study. Mm. So I, I start with that approach. Then we collect data in community, usually with a community advisory board. And then we disseminate data in community. Like who, what outlets are my folks going to listen to? Absolutely. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into like some of the most, you know, some of your biggest findings in your uh, big sex study a little later. But before that, I kind of want to talk about your podcast because I feel Mm -hmm. like what you're talking about really lends itself to the way in which you approach your podcast, which is called Fuck the System, a sexual liberation podcast that fuses sex science and discussion with sex educators, researchers, creators, therapists, and workers about good sex and how to address the systems of oppression that get in the way of it. And so what you're talking about of like, starting with a question, what do you need? I'm sure that this comes up a lot in your podcast when you're talking about what people feel about good sex, how they relate to it, what's coming up for them. Um, And I would love to hear maybe like a few standout guests um, and maybe some of the conversations that you've had that have really come with you. Oh, yes. So one of my favorite guests uh, I lo- I just enjoy the guest in general. Right. <laughs> I like, love talking I to people about sex. But I would say one of the standout guests was Goddess Honeybee. And she does dom work, a femdom, and, and brilliant mind and thoughtfully articulate about what sex is and what sex can be and these systems of oppression that get in the way. And so that combination for me was like, just vibing in the vibing in the discussion and thinking about kink and the value of it as liberation, mm. thinking about how to reconfigure fetish. I had a similar conversation with Marla Stewart, who is the founder of Sex Down South, and you know, thinking about how people play sexually, which, you know, I'm going back to those, going back to those when I think about writing that chapter because like sex play and what it can look like, sex work and what it can look like give us all invitations to have a broader understanding of sex, a more liberated understanding of sex. And because we talk shit about people in those fields, we miss the game. And I'm Mm. like, I want all the game. Like I want to learn everything I can learn and I want to share what I learned with others. So they were two really great guests. I really loved the episode where I had people of the global majority, so people with racially and ethnically marginalized identities who were talking about ethical non-monogamy. And so it was a group of people who were different walks in their ethical non-monogamy journeys and what brought them to it and exploring asexuality within ethical non-monogamy and Mm. what it means to be married and ethically non-monogamous versus single and ethically non-monogamous. Like there was just such a rich conversation in how for many of them, they were told that that's white people shit. And it's like, it's not like that's human shit mm-hmm. <laughs> that we, we, we can explore. And so I, that was a rich conversation too. I really, really love that. I would have loved to be like a fly on the wall, consensually well, speaking, to be. listening. That's, to be. <laughs> that's very true <laughs> um, because I can listen to it. But I just mean like 
in those moments when a conversation like that is happening, I think there's like, and this is what happens to me, and I'm sure you, whenever sex or relationships or consent or anything is talked about, there's like this fiery build of like, yeah. oh my gosh, how can I like contribute? And what do I think about this? And like, there's, but but you're totally right. I, I literally got to be by listening. So I will tune into that. Um, <laughs> that's a good plug. Uh, but yeah, I think specifically with ethical non-monogamy, I, that has been coming up a lot for my guests and audience recently too. I think like for our parents' generation, like that wasn't really talked about. It was kind of like, oh, this is happening under the radar, under kind of the guise of like, this is an affair or this is cheating or this is, you know, or we're breaking up because I want to explore something with someone else. And I think that it's a really beautiful thing, at least like in in America, like yeah. speaking about our culture here, that it's becoming more normalized and more part of the conversation than ever before. Does it feel like that for you as well? It definitely feels like that for me. One thing that's interesting, though, is I feel our parents, well, my parents' generation, so they were born in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. So by the mid-70s, early and mid-70s, there was a free love movement. Mm. It just didn't hold on the same way. right? And so the language around it was... Um, I think I think the same backlash we're starting to see now happened in the 80s and it wiped it from the collective consciousness. Mm. You know what I mean? So that by the time I was born in the 80s, I didn't I'm hearing about that now in 2023 or 2020s where it was a whole movement and a whole, you know, a whole vibe and communities were developed and and communities were dissolved, you know, <laughs> but, right. but I, I, so I think my, my parents grew up in that era where it did exist. And I come from family system. That's really complicated. Where like none of my siblings share the same two parents. Hmm. I have five sisters and a brother. So there was some elements of that, that were playing out still. Like I was talking to my mom and I'm like, you're still cool with like all your exes and stuff. And I'll cut people off. Like, I don't know these people anymore. <laughs> Never heard of them. Never heard of them actually. <laughs> She's like the person you dated for six years. Who? Like, <laughs> but, but I, but I think because they grew up in that cultural environment, even if they weren't actively participating in one of those communities, there was something in the air around that time. There was a lot of liberation movement going on around that time, and then the eighties backlash was just. I mean, it, it was it was propaganda, you know, around right. HIV and like AIDS and all of that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like kind of like a a recycling of like 1950s ideals of like, oh, well, you're going to find your partner and then you're going to have your kids and then you're going to have your little house. And like, I think similar now, I'm a perfect example of this. I live on a a commune kind of. Shut your mouth. I did not know that. So my fiance and I, we live in our own one bedroom apartment um, that is on kind of like a shared property with like 17 other adults and there are parents oh, with God. babies and like we all come together for dinner every night and everyone is it, it, it's really really amazing I've like I've never lived in a community like this before yeah. and there are so many benefits of just being like okay like we have our own space and that's great and we don't have to participate if we don't want to but it's really really great to be able to go and have a conversation with someone about something that's going on we have like a hot tub and a garden and like just these amazing kind of like things that we would have never been able to afford on our own. So it's kind of like 
pooling resources, us being able to live together. And it is same kind of idea of like breaking these norms that you just need one other person in your life to fulfill all your needs. It's and terrible. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of pressure. And so I think like especially my fiance and I recently, you know, whatever, in November, we got engaged and there are all these notions that come along with that, right? Like, okay, well, you're going to get married and you two will just be you two. And then when you have kids, that's going to be your unit. And, you know, that's part of it. But I think seeing this other piece of the community that we're a part of and how people can be like, hey, like I'm going to grocery shop, like, can somebody take the baby monitor? Like there's so much of a an ability of like, yeah, I got your back. We're all like, we're all kind of a, like a family here. And that's really, really great. And so oh, I wonder, yeah. what do you think about that? Is that like something that you would be interested in researching of like, you know, like non-sexual kind of like community needs and the way that we like step up? Look, I have been having this conversation because I have a four-year-old and we are just, my husband and I out here alone because my family's in Georgia, his family's in Chicago. And I'm like, how the fuck are we going to survive this? And so when I went home and all my friends are there and my sister and my mom and my grandmother live in the same house and my other sister lives right down the street and the kids can come. I was like, this is how I grew up. This is how I grew up. I miss multi-generational family, but what you're extending it to is a community. And when you said it, it really took me back because it sounds like, so I grew up in a small town project, um, subsidized housing project. And I was like, it sounds like the projects without the state sanctioned involvement and with mm. a bit more economic resource, right. you know what I mean? But the way we took care of each other, the way I could just walk down the street and go to somebody's house until my mom got off a late shift or, right. you know, like, like we would feed each other and yes. there everybody was an auntie, you know, mm-hmm. like that. That for me is the way to do it. Like yeah. the only way you survive this type of system. So right. I love that. How can I choose the right sex toy for me? This is a great question. Is the porn that you watch ethical? Let's find out. What if my partner does not want to use a condom? I love this question. This is Curious Sex Ed. A podcast where two real sex educators answer even realer sex ed questions that you write into us. We believe that curiosity around bodies, relationships, and sexuality is for everyone. Learn with us as we educate about amazing sex ed topics and share juicy personal stories along the way. Want to join our bestie crew to gain access to Curious Sex Ed? Listen to the first three episodes of Curious Sex Ed for free wherever you get your podcast. And tune into the rest of the season exclusively on buymeacoffee.com slash curioussexed. Let me tell you about one of my favorite pleasure product retailers out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you about them. Lion's Den opened its first retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they've grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the US, building their reputation on high quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex-positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well-being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They are simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase, in-store and online with code SEXEDWITHDB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now.
it just it just kind of like brings into question all of these other ideals specifically about like partnership and who you need and who who are the only people that are allowed to play a certain role in your life and i think it's all related like it really yeah. is all this like web um but yeah we can we can chat offline about a potential study right. here there, there's something going on um <laughs> something good is going on something good is happening um i want to get into your research because you have published over 50-50 research articles just holy hell, congratulations, first of all. Um, that's a lot of work and getting approved by the IRB and, you know, doing, you know, the leadership on that and figuring things out and hypothesizing. And there's all these things that come with that. And it's a lot of yeah. work and effort. I want to know about the big sex study, aka Black people's constructions of good sex, describing good sex from the margins. Okay. Again, fantastic title. I love that it's called the big sex study. It's really relatable. Immediately, obviously, as a sex educator, I'm like, I want to know everything that you're studying. I want to know what you learned. Like, tell me everything. What were you looking to understand? Who did you study? Like, how how did they kind of find the study and what was their experience in it? And I want to know what you found. Okay, so had a lot of fun with this study. It was definitely a hot girl science <laughs> approach. And um, my co-investigator was Dr. Shamika Thorpe. She's a dope sex educator. And so she and I led this project with a community advisory board of sex researchers, educators, workers. And so there were Black women and femmes from different age ranges, sexual identities, walks of life. And then my research team, which is um, multiracial and different ages, body size, sexualities, all of that, and at, at the University of Kentucky. So when we set out to do the study, it was like, we want to know about pleasure and good sex and sex positive elements of Black experiences because- mm -hmm much of the research to date had been sexual health deficit lens, like HIV, STIs, unplanned pregnancy. Shit nobody wants to say is like the day-to-day -day experience of your sexual life. Like those right. are components, but it's not like the reason why people have sex is not the reason why people don't have sex. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to get into desire and like just play around with some things. So it was three phases. The first, we did a big survey, 500 um, around 500 Black people with different ethnicities and ages, sexualities, genders, all of those components, asking them about sexual pleasure, asking them about masturbation, asking them about how they define good sex, asking them what their favorite sex song is. It's like, like lots of fun questions. And then we interviewed 37 of them after that. And then we did focus groups with three groups of them. Wow. And so we got different types of data and we've been just writing papers relating to that data. So the big sex studies first paper was that good sex one that you're, you're describing, but our first project, our first output was our playlist. And so when we took all of the songs that people said were their favorite sex songs and one of my mentees, Dr. Chesmore Monty created, he's a, he does DJing work too so he created the playlist oh from that God, song amazing. like you know how you gotta put the songs in a certain order for them to really vibe that was the first thing that we put out because we were like we want it to be something that people can access and resonates with them and then we did that paper and in that paper we found 20 components of good sex so we asked black folk um if you could describe good sex in three words what would they be hmm. 
And then we had, you know, like our qualitative analysis and, and like figuring out what words kind of related to other words and how we compiled them. And the first word, the, the most frequent word was passionate. Oh. So I was like, oh, passionate. What does that mean? And then it was intimate and then it was fun and then it was pleasurable and then it was satisfying and uh, consensual and like different loving and liter- liberating and all of these we got, we con- distilled it down to 20 words and talked about what it means for sex to be good sex, to be a multifaceted thing that no two people are going to have the same definition of it. Yeah. And that's important. And it can have these different components that maybe people haven't explored for themselves that they then can incorporate because it can enrich their sexual experience, which is what the, what will be the basis of my book. We've also talked, uh, we have two studies about masturbation, one under review, one that's out black women's masturbation messages or what people told us about masturbation, black men's masturbation messages, um, uh, partner status and what that means for sexual pleasure and so many more studies to come in the next few years. So we have tons of data. And if there are questions that people are curious about, we always invite them to let us know because we can put together a study or even just a talk on those. Yes. Um, yes, I am very interested <laughs> in maybe doing like an Instagram live or something where yeah. we kind of talk through some of those. It's so important. I think like I, there's just like not enough of this research out there and especially mm-hmm. centering black people. Like, can you maybe talk a bit about like why it's so important to center black people in scientific research and why we should be really like paying attention to that, like to the idea that that wasn't the norm for a very long time. And if it was the norm, then it was in an exploitative way. Like why, why is it important, especially in sexual health research to center black people? Yeah. The foundation of it in the United States is a little bit different. So I want to not, you know, I don't want to make this seem like it's a global perspective, but for the anti-blackness that exists here, that means that black people had been the cautionary comparison tale of mm-hmm. what not to do sexually for so long. And we were used that way by, you know, like wealthy white land owners to kind of set these puritanical values up here. And this is why we're, why we're wealthy and why we're good and why we're the best and why we're dominant. This is what you have to avoid so that you're not dehumanized. None of that is true. Like this human hierarchy doesn't exist, but that's the way black people have been used. And so original sex research, you know, talking about black men's sexual prowess and penis size and their propensities to rape white women. Like it wasn't even research. It wasn't even scientific. It was just like theories that people develop when they're going to oppress people like to explain away stories. the oppression. Right. He was like, I need to explain away the cognitive dissonance I feel about, you know, using you as enslaved labor. So here is how we're going to explain that. Right. And same for black women, you know, being exploited and, and trigger warning raped, you know, by landowners and, you know, and not having any protections under the state, regardless of how our bodies were treated and how we were treated. Like, you have to explain that some way to still feel like you're a good human. And mm. a lot of the stereotypes about sexuality were kind of this based in that, like black women always wanted black women are lascivious. And so when I came into this project, knowing that history, and a lot of that comes from Patricia Hill Collins, black sexual politics, medical apartheid, um, 
fearing the black body. Like there are some really great historical books around that. I was like, I understand that history and I want to be an intervention. So I don't want to keep unpacking that. I I want to contextualize it in the oppression, but I want to be the intervention. So what's fun? What's pleasurable? What's joyful? How do we make the examination of black sexualities enriched by like the beauty of the sexualities that exist within blackness? I literally got chills when you said intervention. Am I like an MPH or an IMPH? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> that's right. You are an intervention. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea of like contextualizing without needing to further unpack and Ugh. move fo- Like it, there's a lot of power in like me hearing you say that and hearing like, okay, like what are we going to do about it? Like let's. Right really center black women, black men, black non-binary people and their joy and their experiences and their partnership and their pleasure. And like, let's keep doing that for hundreds Mm -hmm. and hundreds of research and just like on studies and keep, keep that in the public eye as much as possible, because the more it's normalized and more people can access it, the more likely we are to really grasp those stories and believe them because it's literally science. It's hot girl science. Right. And here's the here's the dope thing that I found so fascinating is if I want to take the most generous and positive lens to it, the first sexual experiences that we could conceive of in humans had to be black people because they human form existed in Africa first. Mm-hmm. And so it's like if black sexuality is the foundation of all sexualities, why wouldn't we be studying this with right. a comprehensive view? Totally. That it. Yes. From from the dawn of time. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Let's just take it back a couple right. of years. Right. Right. Like... Right. Uh, well, I can't wait to to read more about your big sex study, and I'm really excited to chat with you um, about doing some sort of talk about yeah. like the learnings mm-hmm. and the lessons because it's just I really and I really like that idea of like describing good sex in three words because it also does shift and change over time depending on who you're thinking of if you're thinking of just yourself like there's so many differences that can come up and i'm if do you have any plan to like follow up with those people at some point down the line well we did that's what the interviews were about because we asked them we we put that list together that they created and we were like what do you think about this order so for black trans folk uh this is this is the order versus black cis people this is the order or black women right and cis women and cis men this is the order black queer folk and black heterosexual folk this is the order right what do y'all think about this and ask them to make sense of that Totally. Yeah. And I also mean like, okay, what if in five years from now they have like Ooh. really different ideas of how that, you know, maybe some of them have kids. Like a longitudinal yes, study. Yes, a longitudinal study. If they're like, if some of them have children, what their differences are, are what what are they thinking about that? If some of them have gotten divorced, what do they think about like yes. reframing the way that they think about sex with themselves or with new partners or whatever? I love that. I love, I love taking that lens, that longitudinal lens, because it does evolve, right? So 20-year-old me had a different definition of good sex than 40-year-old me. And it's going to continue to evolve. My hope is that it continues to evolve. Yes, exactly. Um, Let's talk about new research that you're Mm -hmm. doing right now. Um, What's like exciting new sexual health research that you and some of your colleagues are working on? Ooh, okay. So I submitted my first NIH grant in March, an R01. 
and we got scored and discussed. So this week I'll find out what the reviewers said. I'll get my summary statement, but it was a pretty good score for a first timer. So there's a chance that with some minor revisions, it could be funded and it's going to be called the ad sex fund study. So I will be comparing with a great team of researchers. So Kristen Mark and Debbie Herbenick and Shamika Thorpe and Danielle Stevens Watkins and Meredith Duncan, um, how black women's sexual functioning and white women's sexual functioning may or may not differ. We don't really have, we don't have like the data on exactly what those differences will be, but because of those structural, you know, systems of oppression that we talked about and the cultural values of collectivism and individualism, we hypothesize that there will be some differences in like how we experience our sexual functioning partnered people who are partnered. Mm -hmm. And so what partnership does for our sexual functioning, will it be important to think about what a black woman's partner means and what a white woman's partner means and how that shows up in her, her orgasms, how that shows up in her desire, how that shows up in her arousal, how that shows up in her pleasure. And so being able to explore like those good pieces again, like the sexual functioning, the goodies of it, but with a comparison and not like white people are the norm comparison that we sometimes see, but like black women are the center, but we understand that there are going to be differences based on like how we are positioned in the world and what might that look like. So that's what I'm really excited about. Interesting. Yeah. I imagine that there are so, there's so many complexities with like, not only like black women and white women and partnership, but what are the race of their partners? Who are yes. their partners? What are the genders of their are, partners? Are they queer? Like, are are they, yes. what are their ages? Like what yep. are, yeah, like, wow, that is really, really interesting because what I kind think, of relationship do they have? Yes. Like all of those. Yes. Yeah, are they creatures. monogamous? Are they not? Like, mm-hmm. th- yeah, there are so many like intricacies within yes. that. So I'm really curious to hear, I'm sure they're going to be really fantastic. Like interviews and stories, but I'm really, really interested to see like writ large, like what the data show. Yeah. Yep. We're going to have definitely a survey and then interviews with the couples. And so I would love to come back when we get some of those data and tell you all about it because I I am super excited for this. Hell yeah. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, we have a couple more questions. Thank you again so much. This has been a fantastic interview. I'm like really geeking oh, out you. talking to you. So thank you so much for, for I'm chatting. I'm definitely in my nerdy bag right now. Like. <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. I can receive. I'm into it. Um, I want to know where you think there are like major research gaps right now in the field of sexual and reproductive health. I mean, I think like you're one of the people who we're talking to for this podcast because you fill some of those very needed gaps. And so that's really great that like you're the answer to that question. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering even for you as someone who's in this field, like what what's going on here? What are the gaps and who do you want to step in to fill those gaps? Yeah. I want to see more trans and gender expansive people of the global majority do the research that they want done with their communities. Mm. And because we don't, so even when I think about something like sexual functioning, we'll be studying cis women. Trans women's experiences will look different based on how they're positioned in the world and how 
the even the the way we conceptualize sexual functioning like the sexual desire and arousal cycles are based on cis models like i want a new sexual functioning model mm. based in gender expansive experiences so that even for 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 sure that trans and gender expansive people can feel like ah i am visible here I, this mm. this makes sense to me but all of us get free you know when we see oh this is another way that sexual desire and arousal and response can happen that we haven't even been considerate of because we've been having a, you know, a heteronormative cisnormative perspective. Mm -hmm. So those are some major gaps, just having narrow definitions of what sexual functioning is. Um, I want to see more with people who have visible and invisible disabilities and across the lifespan, people who maybe moved into disability or out of disability. So mm -hmm. like from your perspective, you were talking about the longitudinal approach. Right. I think about with reproductive health and in particular, so from my own journey on the reproductive health, like traumatic experiences with that and what it means to be healthy and then not healthy and healthy again. And, you know, and how that impacts your sexual functioning, but also what that means, especially as a psychologist for people who have mental health disorders or mental health concerns that either come from those other traumas or are more organic. I just, I want to, I want to see people with multiply marginalized identities get paid to do sex research. Mm. Yeah. The, the disability thing, like I, I think like what I heard from an organization that works with older disabled folks is like it, there are the disabled and there are the not yet disabled like mm -hmm. everyone in their life if they are lucky and like live long enough experiences some sort of disability with with age that's just inevitable yep and i think that that is a really really important piece of thinking about mm -hmm. okay like how is this impacting mental health which is also impacting sexual function i think like for folks who are my age i'm 30 and a lot of my friends, at least anecdotally, have expressed, oh, you know, I'm on SSRIs. I'm mm -hmm. on antidepressants. I am not able to get in the mood for sex. Like that yes. is such a common story. And especially I, I personally have never been on SSRIs, but I know that when I was on the birth control pill, I was like experiencing really painful sex. It like yes. what it wasn't, and and it wasn't even told to me that that was like no. a possibility of what was going to happen. They don't even talk about the side effects of they that. Don't yeah. talk about it. And so I'm I'm sure there's a huge amount of research that can be done on that, and especially when it comes to yeah, women, people with vulvas, people with marginalized identities who just like haven't been talked to about these mm -hmm. things. And I want them to be. Uh, paid to do the science because yes. what we often see is they'll bring even somebody like me with racially marginalized identity, but I don't have like a, a, a so I'm a cis woman, you know, I'm heterosexual. I have a ton of privileged identities around this. And so people would be like, well, since you talk about diversity, you could do the study. I could, but why would you ask me to do that when somebody whose lived experience it is would be from in my in my estimation more credible and have the understanding of the deep nuance that so mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be able to I don't have the range, right. you know? And I, I don't think people You want to pass the mic. Study, 
Thank you. I don't think a lot of people who study black sexuality have the range either. Cause I'm always right. like looking at who the authors are and like, so <laughs> let's talk about this. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> the, the silence is deafening. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, and, and yeah, totally. We talked, we talked about this a lot in public health school too. Like we, nothing about us without us. Like there just yes. needs to be people present in the lead, getting paid for doing the work that they're doing, um, in order to contribute to, you know, the general body of scientific research. Yep. Dr. Candace Nicole, this has been such a fantastic interview. I'm really, really lucky Thank to have you. you. Uh, I'm wondering if you can just share where folks can find you, learn more about your work, uh, if you know when your book's coming out, whatever you'd like to share uh, for people to access your content and your information and your research. Yeah, y'all can find me. I want to be found at drcandisnicole.com <laughs> and at drcandisnicole on Instagram and Threads. I've been messing around with Threads. Let me sure see. Sure have. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see how that's going to turn out. Yeah. Because Twitter and me weren't working out. Like, I tried. I was just like, this ain't, this is not going to hit. But um, so those are my places in YouTube as well. You can find my podcast there. Um. And the book will come out February 2025. So I am okay. writing the book now, y'all. Right. That means that I have to write it. It's due at the end of this calendar year. And then you get a whole year where you got to promote it and edit it and revise it and all of that stuff. So we've got some time, but connect with me. And I, I like to talk about different aspects of the writing process and what I'm doing and sharing my science. So I love to be in community. Well, I would love to have you back on for when we talk about the book and I hear all about that. Uh, but Dr. Candace Nicole, thank you again so much for joining. It's been such thank a pleasure you. chatting with you. Thanks, Stevie. Our creator, host, and executive producer is me, Danielle Bezalow. Our producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our associate producer and communications coordinator is Sadie Luigi. Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. For exclusive content and to submit an anonymous sex ed question, check out my new podcast on Fridays, Curious Sex Ed, hosted with Mariah Caudillo of Sex Ed Files. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash curiouss sex ed to learn more. See you next time.